Remain standing for our epistle, lesson, and sermon text from Romans 7. I'm going to read the same passage as we read last week, but from the, hand, from the translation on the handout this time. Listen and pay close attention to God's word. Or are you unaware, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law exercises lordship over a person as long as he lives? For instance, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she marries another man while her husband lives, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, even though she is married to another man. Therefore, my brethren... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be married to another, to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions that were stimulated by the law were at work in our members so that we bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were held down so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit rather than the oldness of the written code. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Help us, God, please, to understand Your Word and to know You better through what You have revealed to us, what You have spoken to us. We thank You for not being a silent God a quiet God, but but a God who speaks, who reveals, and you have revealed to us who you are, who we are, and through your word you have saved us and you continue, as Jesus said in John 17, you continue to sanctify us by your word, which is truth. And so we pray that you would do that even this hour, sanctify us by the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today is Pentecost Sunday, as Pastor Bobby mentioned. That's why, by the way, that we're wearing the red stoles to symbolize the, the fire, the spirit, which is symbolized by fire. And so red is the day... Uh, red is the, the color on Pentecost. Uh, that's my favorite color to wear, but we only get to wear it a couple times a year and then on ordination. So I always look forward to the red. And today's text is sort of a Pentecost text in the sense that it features the Spirit and the Spirit's work in bringing in the new covenant at an individual level. Okay, so we read how the Spirit brought in the new covenant at Pentecost, right? That's when, that, some, some have called that the birthday of the church or the birthday of the new covenant. You could, you, could, you know, the resurrection could work as that too. It's, it's the whole event of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then pouring out His Spirit at Pentecost. That's when the new covenant was really inaugurated, but the, the climax in a sense of that, the, the, 
the, the last thing was the giving of the Spirit. But here in this passage, Paul is talking about how this, at the very end of this passage that we serve, or we could say we walk in the newness of that Spirit, which is not the oldness of the law. And in due time, we will unpack that. When you're driving down the highway and you come to a sign that says speed limit 55 mph, miles per hour, you've encountered the law. The, law, the sign reveals the law of the land, which says your speed should not exceed 55 on this particular highway at this particular moment. Now, that speed limit sign is very effective in, at communicating to you, to the driver, the standard. It reveals the law with great simplicity and clarity and succinctness, right? That the letters and numbers on the sign tell you exactly what is required of you by, by the authorities. But the sign is very ineffective at causing you to submit to the standard. The sign possesses no power to make you slow down and obey the law that it, that it represents, that it's communicating. In fact, for some, particularly for those who may despise speed limit mandates, the sign may even stimulate their desire to speed in an effort to free themselves from such laws. If you obey speed limit laws, you do so maybe for one or two reasons. You do it either because you merely want to avoid certain legal or perhaps social consequences, depending on who's in the car or what certain people might say if you get a ticket, or because you think speed limit laws are wise and they deserve your obedience. Those are the two probably main reasons that if you do obey speed limit laws, why you do it. If you only obey the speed limit laws because you want to avoid certain consequences, then your obedience, we could say, is, is merely external. You don't love that law. You just submit out of self-interest, you know, self-protection, perhaps. In this case, your obedience is only outward obedience. It's not coming from the heart, right? But if you obey the speed limit laws because you believe they're a good idea, then, uh, then you, or because you, you believe it's the right thing for whatever reason, it, then your obedience is internal. You submit to these laws from, from your heart. The difference between these two forms of obedience is, I put scare quotes around obedience because we're going to talk about how only one of them is real, but the, the, the difference is the direction in which the law is moving. Okay, I know that doesn't make any sense, but just, I'm going to explain it. The difference is the direction in which the law is moving. In the first scenario, where the person is obeying begrudgingly, doesn't really want to, but he's doing it for these external reasons, the law is moving from the outside in. In the second scenario, where the person is obeying cheerfully, willfully, the movement of the law is from the inside out. In the first scenario, the law is an external force that presses in on the person and oppresses him, cramps his style, annoys him. 
In the second scenario, the law is an internal, has become an internal force that flows from the person's heart and manifests itself in the person's actions. The person in the first scenario will often find himself, as you know, breaking the law because the external pressure of the law is never enough to make someone obey the law consistently. The law is unable to penetrate the heart of a man. The law cannot transform hearts. If you, if you have a low regard for the speed limit laws, then you'll inevitably find yourself violating them because you don't really believe they're good and you're willing to take your chances so you can do what you want rather than what the law says. Now, many of you are too young to drive, so this, this analogy, this illustration may not land for you. You may not think much about speed limit laws, but you have other rules that you're supposed to follow, right? So if you're, if you're below 16, or if you don't have your license and you don't drive at whatever age, maybe you have other rules. Children, do any of your parents have house rules or laws for you to follow? Do, do, do they make rules about when you're supposed to go to bed, when you're supposed to eat, maybe how much you're supposed to eat, and how you're supposed to dress, how long you can be on the computer, when you're supposed to do your schoolwork, and how much schoolwork. Anybody have any rules like that? Children, raise your hand if there are any of those rules. Okay, good. All right, that's a good sign. So children, how do you respond to your parents' rules? And, and, and maybe think of the ones that you have the hardest time with right now. Do you obey their laws only because you don't want to get in trouble? Or do you obey them because you love their instruction, as the Proverbs say, and you delight to honor them and please them? Do you hate the dress code that your parents have set for you? Do you despise the limitations they put on your screen time? Do you, do you chafe under their commandments? Do, do you just groan and moan about them more than you're thankful for them? Or, or do you cheerfully submit even though you don't know all the reasons for their, for their rules? If you obey, but you hate it, it's because your parents' rules are merely external laws to you. And, and your obedience is only outward, on, on the surface. If that's the case, then the law of your parents is an annoying external force moving from the outside in that presses in on you from the outside. It cramps your style, maybe literally, your dress but if you obey your parents because you delight to do their will, then in this case, your parents' rules are now inside of you. They've become a part of you. You've internalized them. It, they're written on your heart in a sense. And, and your submission to their leadership is now from the heart, which is how it's supposed to be. According to Paul, only one of these two kinds of obedience is actual obedience. The person who obeys the laws of the land or the house rules, the laws of the parents, only because he or she doesn't want to get in trouble, isn't truly obeying the law. 
because true obedience flows from the heart. Paul made that actually crystal clear already back in chapter 6 when he says that at our conversion we were made to obey from the heart in verse 17 up in chapter 6 of, of Romans. The person who keeps God's law but who would much rather be breaking God's law is not really obeying the law because his obedience doesn't originate from a heart that loves God and treasures his law, delights in his law, knows how perfect his law is. Only the person who has internalized God's law, only the person who has had the law written on his heart will be able to truly obey it. Obedience is only possible when the law is flowing from the inside out, just like those living waters that we read about in John 7. If you know you ought to keep God's commandments, but in your heart of hearts you love even more to break God's commandments, then your efforts to obey God's law will be futile and fruitless, to use Paul's terminology, and your life will be frustrating and joyless. If that's you, then Paul describes your unhappy situation as bondage. He says you're still under the lordship of the law. If the law is forcing itself on you from, the, from without, if it's oppressing you from the outside, if the movement of the law in your case, is from the outside in, then it's exercising dominion over you. And the result, again, to use Paul's language, is bad fruit. Bad fruit. Fruit for death. Fruit unto death. To be free from the law's oppression, a person must have the law on his insides. He must have the law written on his heart. And in order for this to happen, in order for this to happen, the person must die and get a new husband, a new relationship. What's Paul's main application in Romans 7, 1 to 6? Again, the, we talked about this last week. The central takeaway, you can find it at the end of verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. The, the, that phrase, remember, drives everything Paul says in this passage, both before and after it in order that we may bear fruit for God. Bearing fruit for God is why you were given a new husband, Christ. Bearing fruit for God is why you were brought into the new covenant by the Spirit. The new covenant, which Paul says is of the Spirit and not of the law. The Holy Spirit has written the law in your heart so that you can bear fruit for God. You can experience the freedom of bearing fruit for God rather than the bondage of the law's oppression. So everything in the text points to the end of verse 4. Either points toward it or back, back to it. But Paul doesn't just exhort us to bear fruit. And this is where we're getting to the main point today. He also answers the how question. How do we bear fruit for God? How, how do we grow as Christians? What, what's it look like? What's the process? What's even more important? What's the source of our sanctification. Where's the energy coming from? We could call it the power source. 
The answer in verses 1 to 4 is that our union with Christ is the source of our spiritual development. And today we'll unpack what it means to be vitally connected to Christ so that his life flows through us. And then next week, we'll come back, Lord willing, and look at verse 6 and focus on how the Holy Spirit feeds our fruitfulness by enabling us to obey the law. So we're going to spend three weeks just on these six verses because they are important, foundational for moving for understanding what lies ahead, especially. So let's quickly review the first half of this paragraph. We, we, we went more in depth last week. Let's quickly review so we can get to point two on the outline. Last week was more point one, now point two, which is where we'll camp out today. Verse one, or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law exercises lordship over a person as long as he lives? So Paul's axiom, his, his truth, self-evident truth here, is that the law only has authority over a person as long as that person is alive, as, as long as he lives. There's, there's one thing, there's one thing that every lawbreaker can do to be absolutely free from the law's demands and dominion. That one thing is to die. When you die, the law can't make any more demands on you. It's no longer your Lord. The law that Paul's talking about here is God's law. When he says in verse 1 that he's speaking to those who know the law, he means the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome who know the law of God because they've been reading it or hearing it read in synagogue and in their community. It's the law of God as revealed in the Old Testament. In verses 2 and 3, Paul illustrates the axiom with an analogy. For instance, Paul says, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. Verse 3, So then if she marries another man while her husband lives, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, even though she is married to another man. It's a little tricky figuring out how the analogy in verses 2 and 3 relates to the axiom in verse 1 because verse 1 refers to a person that dies and in verses 2 and 3, it's the person's spouse that dies. And we determined last week that the key principle, we've got to be careful when we're applying analogies and illustrations, we don't go too far and not treat this as an allegory, that we determined last week that the key principle that Paul wants us to take with us into verse 4 is that a death can bring freedom from the law and such a death can lead or result in a new relationship, a new marriage specifically. That's, that's what the axiom in verse 1 and the analogy in verse, verses 2 and 3 taught us. A death can bring freedom from the law and this death can bring about, lead to, result in a new relationship, specifically a new marriage. Now let's read Paul's application in verse uh, application of verses 1 through 3 and verse 4, which is the heart of this passage. The axiom, verse 1, analogy, verses 2 and 3, now the application, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be married to another, to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
when Paul talks about dying to something, he's talking about the personal experience of being released from bondage to that thing. So being dead to sin back in chapter 6 meant being released from sin's dominion, bondage. Being dead to the law in chapter 7 means being released from the law's oppression as it presses in on you from the outside. So when did this happen? When did you die to the law? When did that event take place? When did the law stop oppressing you as, as an outside force primarily? When was it written on your heart so that you could obey it from the heart? It happened when you were joined to Christ by saving faith. It happened at your conversion when you were born again. That's when Christ's death on the cross became your death to sin, your death to the law. You died to the law when you came to know Christ. And why did you die to the law? Why did you die to its oppression over you? Why did Christ unite you to himself and his death? Verse 4 says, so that you could be married to another. Specifically, so that you could be married to Christ. Jesus died so that he could be married to you, and you died so that you could be married to him. The relationship, the union could only be established through death. His death and your death and your death is in him because his death is your death when you are united to him. You died together in order to rise from the dead together in order to be united together in marriage. That's the story of every believer. And Paul tells this story in verse 4, really in verses 1 through 4. But the ultimate reason you died to the law, again, is found at the end of verse 4. So in order that we may bear fruit for God, the purpose of having this new relationship, this new husband, is to bear fruit for God. True union with Christ will always be a fruitful union. Salvation always produces sanctification. Redemption always produces holiness. We were delivered from the law to be united to Christ. And we were united to Christ to bear fruit for God. The goal of your deliverance from the law is fruitfulness. Holiness. If there's no holiness in your life, it's because there's no deliverance, no justification, no salvation. Without personal holiness, Hebrews 12 says, you will not see the Lord. It's it, one of the plainest verses in Scripture about sanctification and the necessity of holiness. No one sees God apart from the Spirit's work of holiness in that person's life. And what, what the writer of Hebrews means there is if there's no holiness, there's no evidence of salvation in the first place. The absence of personal holiness indicates the absence of true and living faith. The great 19th century theologian Charles Hodge wrote, the only evidence of union with Christ is bringing forth fruit unto God. So what evidence is there of your union with Christ? Are you bearing any fruit for God? Living faith always bears living fruit. Now some of you will hear this message and your natural response will be, 
All right, I really, really need to try harder and make sure I'm bearing more fruit. I need to buckle down. You know, maybe you're convicted by, by Paul's words. I need to buckle down and get serious and become more of a, a more fruitful Christian. I need to say no to more sin and say no to sin more often. And I need to produce more fruit of the Spirit. It's not a good response. The problem with thinking this way, uh, other than it never works, is that it's I-focused, me-focused, instead of Christ-focused. Your eyes are on yourself rather than on Jesus. It makes you the source of your growth in holiness rather than Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to get serious about your sin and to take responsibility for your sin. What I'm saying is that if your initial response, your basic response starts with you and your resolve and your willpower and maybe techniques that you need to put in place, if that's where it starts, then it's not going to end well. If verse 4 teaches anything, it teaches that the source of your sanctification is your marital union, your marriage with Christ. You've been married to another. And that is that your union with Jesus is that power source. Your, your new husband, your new head, to use Paul's language earlier in Romans, is the source of your fruit. You are not the source of your fruitfulness. You never will be. You never can be. You never will be the source of your fruitfulness any more than a tree branch is the source of its fruitfulness. When I was a kid, we, we had an apple tree in our backyard. That, that apple tree produced a lot of fruit in the at least the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I consumed much of it. Sometimes too much in one day. But how many of those delicious, perfectly sour apples do you think were produced because the branches on the tree tried really, really hard to bear fruit? You know, they buckled down and, and said, we're going we're gonna to do this thing. None of them produced fruit that way. When I would climb the tree as a boy, I never heard any of the branches saying, all right, I really need to make sure I'm doing at least as much fruit as, as last year. I, I need to bear more apples. I need to buckle down, get serious, be a fruitful apple, uh, apple tree branch. I need to say no to diseases more often, and I need to, to bear more fruit. Whenever I interacted with the tree, its branches were at rest. They didn't even mind my climbing around on them. They were strong. They, they, they weren't struggling or striving, trying to bear fruit from their own resources or by their own efforts. No, they were at peace. They were resting and abiding in the tree. The tree trunk that had all the sap they needed to bear good 
delicious fruit. Your marriage to Christ is like the union between a tree branch and a tree trunk. In Christ, there is an infinite source of spiritual nutrients, spiritual sap. If, if you're struggling and striving, trying to bear fruit from your own resources, by your own effort, by your own cleverness or ingenuity or better plan, then I can predict with certainty that you're not at peace. You're frustrated with your progress in the Christian life. And sometimes you may wonder even if you are a Christian. Some Christians feel this way because their connection to the tree has become extremely weak. Some people feel this way because there's no connection to the tree at all. If you're not connected to the tree, you're not connected to your head, to Christ, or if the connection is weak, then you're in a position to be oppressed by the law, the way we were talking about before. When the law comes and says to you, as it has every right to do, bear fruit, be holy as I am holy. That's God speaking. Go and sin no more. It's God speaking too. When the law comes with its perfectly legitimate demands for your holiness, what effect will this have on you if you're not abiding in Christ? It'll make you miserable, miserable in the way that Paul's been talking about because you have no power to do what the law is demanding of you. You can't do what you know you ought to do. There's, there's not enough sap running through your spiritual vessels. There's no constant supply to produce the fruit of righteousness. You might try to obey. You might try to produce the fruit of the Spirit. You might try to put to death the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. You might try to stop lashing out in anger. You might try really hard to live in the joy of the Lord better today than you did yesterday. Or to stop lusting or to be patient with your children or to stop doubting God and His Word or to stop being obstinate to your parents or to your husband or to stop being critical of your wife or to have more self-control with your eating or your language or your envious thoughts. But all your effort is doomed from the start if your main source, or perhaps your only source, of spiritual energy is your own willpower, your own effort, your own strength, your own resolve. It's like a dried up tree branch, a withered limb trying to produce sap and trying to bear the fruit that it needs to produce out of thin air. It's not going to get it. can't find it in thin air. Or it's like a woman who desires to bear children for her husband without ever becoming intimate with him. No matter how much she wills herself to become pregnant, no matter how badly she wants to be fruitful and multiply with this man, she won't ever be able to bear children for him unless she unites herself with him and they become one flesh. She doesn't have the resources she needs on her own. If the law is still beating you up and holding you down, if you're, if, you, if you're experiencing defeat instead of fruit, if there are areas where you feel unable to meet the demands of God's commandments, no matter how hard you try, then the first thing you need to do is stop trying. 
Stop trying in the sense that I've been talking about trying and draw near to Christ. Rest in him. Abide in his love. The sap you need, the the, the spiritual nutrients and vitality that you need to bear fruit is in him and in him alone. You, You can't find it anywhere else. There's no replacement for it. There's no substitute. There's no synthetic alternative. You you can't make your own nutrients, your own sap. And the law certainly doesn't come with any sap. So stop looking to yourself and look to Christ. Stop relying on your own paltry resources and tap into the infinite spiritual resources that are in Christ alone. Now, another question some of you are asking is, okay, but, but still, how? How do I do that? How, how do I live connected to Christ? How do I rest in Him instead of relying on my own efforts and maneuvering? Again, you, you may be asking this question because you've drifted away from Christ and you've forgotten what it means to abide in in Christ. It's been a long time since you've enjoyed fellowship with Jesus, intimate communion with Jesus. Or you may be asking this question because you need to be born again. You need to be united to Christ for the first time. Either way, the answer is the same. Paul's answer is the same. You must die. That's what he says. Yourself must be crucified. That's that's the way forward. That's the path that you have to get on. It's the path of death. You must die with Christ to yourself. You see, death to sin and death to the law are other ways of talking about death to self. Death to the old man. Galatians 2.20 should be at least one of your life verses. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it begins with death. You see... Our main spiritual problem, your, my main spiritual problem, your main spiritual problem, this is universal, it applies to everyone. Your main spiritual problem is there's too much you living in you and not enough Christ living in you. You are calling the shots. You are at the center of your world. Your, choice, your choices serve you rather than Christ. So maybe if if you don't like people telling you what to do, if you resent rules and find it hard to submit to your authorities, if you find no delight in obeying your parents' laws, if if you find no delight in keeping God's law, if, if God's law dominates you and makes you miserable, it's because there's too much you. You're full of you, and you need to be full of Christ and His Spirit. And the way to get there is death. Paul says the way to get there is death. And so when you die, when you humble yourself and die, and death always includes humbling yourself 
getting yourself out of the driver's seat, submitting yourself to God. When you humble yourself and die, either for the first time as a new believer or again and again as a believer, when you humble yourself and die, when Christ and His Spirit are living in you, what's the result? New fruit springs up. When Christ begins to live and reign in you, when the sap of His Spirit begins to flow through your spiritual vascular system, even overflowing and flowing out of you, as as Jesus says in John 7, you will bear spiritual fruit for God in abundance. And nothing will be able to stop it. Nothing will be able to stop it. Tempted to say it'll flow naturally, but that's not true. It will flow supernaturally because you are united to Christ and His Spirit. So in these first two sermons in Romans 7, we've covered the first two points on the outline. We've seen how the Christian bears new fruit because he is vitally connected to a new head, a new husband, Jesus Christ, who has infinite resources. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll consider how the blessings of the new covenant, Paul is, is alluding here very clearly, echoing new, new covenant theology. We'll see how the blessings of the new covenant and the resources of the Holy Spirit empower the believer to walk in the newness of resurrection life. Let's pray. Father, again, we need your help to believe these things, to apply them to our lives, to go forth from here as doers of your word. We specifically need your help. We need your son's help. We need the spirit's help and bearing fruit for you. And so we pray that you would sustain us and that you would continue the good work that you've begun in us, your people, until the day of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.